You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. We watched every movie last year. We rated every kiss and every tear. We saw Tom Cruise sucking blood. Meg Ryan hit the booze. We saw 13 with you, Grant. And 7 by John Hughes. The critic is a mystery. No one knows why he thinks. Except for Jay Sherman. Who always says... It stinks! <gasps> <laughs> How awkward. Hello and welcome to Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, a unofficial limited run podcast looking at the acclaimed 90s animated series The Critic. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. And uh, this time we're looking at season one, episode two, titled Miserable. It was written by Steve Leviton and directed by Dan Jupe. Um, I want to give special thanks to Sean Franson and a very special thanks to Peter Monks. They uh, helped donate at our campaign at Indiegogo to help uh, raise money for the show. Fantastic. And yeah, this um, we're doing these episodes in order as how they're listed on the uh, the DVD set. But this is, was actually one episode that didn't air until later. But the DVD set is the preferred order, so that's the way um, we're doing it. And uh, this episode was considered controversial by ABC at the time, which is why they did not want to air it right away. <laughs> I, it, it, um, I find it just astonishingly quaint where there was a, a time when people thought that an episode like this would be controversial. <laughs> uh, you know, I listened to the audio commentary on this one, and they mentioned that about how, you know, compared to... Um, uh, I don't know, like Family Guy or Bob's Burgers or some of the stuff they have now that's a bit you know, more more crude and more extreme. This stuff is pretty innocent. But, like, I mean, think about, you know, it wasn't that long before The Critic where you had The Simpsons uh, saying that, like, Bart Simpson was a bad role model because he was on a skateboard and said <laughs> things like, eat my shorts, right? I mean, that's pretty mild. Which is a complete and, non sequitur of an insult. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, when that was considered controversial not too long before The Critic, and in this, in Miserable, um, it's, it's a takeoff on Misery, right? The Stephen King book and, and the, the movie with Kathy Bates. Really, I heard this episode came first and that uh, Stephen King ripped them off. Well, you know, there's still litigation. I don't know if we're allowed to uh, talk about it. Although I don't know why it'd affect us. We're not in litigation. Well, not officially anyway. That's right. <laughs> Be good publicity if we were, I suppose. But, yeah, um... <coughs> I'll just say it off the bat. Um, this episode is not one of my favorites. And I, I, th- I think the reason why is it concentrates less on uh, Jay's family, more on his workplace. And a lot of the episode, the main character of Jay Sherman is unconscious. You know, I'm, I'm going to partially agree with you. Uh, I don't like the first half of, the, half of this episode, but I love the second half. And I think part of that is because I, I've, I've said before in previous podcasts that I'm generally I am a fan of more meandering storytelling. However, this episode does take its sweet time for the story to actually kick in. Yeah, and I don't know um, why that is, because the pilot is so jam packed with jokes and everything. It, it sort of sets you up for expectations 
that um, you're going to want that, you know, snappy pacing throughout the whole series, which is not what you necessarily get. Well, I think this- part part of that is this episode, as mentioned, was written by Steve Levitan, and he he wrote this episode. Uh, he pitched this episode on spec, so he was kind of an outside voice coming in. I think he captured the vo- the voice and the tone of the critic perfectly, but he does not capture the pacing. Yeah, and that that could be a good. Um, good reason for that. Um, and so, like, once again, like the pilot, you have a storyline where Jay Sherman falls in love, um, with a woman, but there's kind of, you know, sinister reasonings behind it. In the first episode, you might recall, he fell in love with, um, with Valerie someone, Fox, the actress. Yeah, Valerie Fox, an actress that wanted uh, a good review out of him. <coughs> Excuse me. And and in a way. Uh, the projectionist in uh, this episode also wants a good review out of Jay, but in an ent- entirely different way. Yeah, and while um, the woman in the first episode, Valerie, uh, they drew her pretty, pretty sexy looking. Um, this one, with her eyes and stuff, it just looks so creepy looking. Well, she has a really neat like body type. She's almost a female reflection of the critic, but the way that her eyes are so intense, both with how expressive they are, but with the the makeup and the fact that they bother to animate her her pupils and iris separately, gives her eyes this really intense piercing quality. Yeah, I mean the eyes really stick out, and then. Um... I think that that's probably why it is. Also, the eyes themselves look a bit larger than uh, some of the other characters, um, especially in this first season. Well, so let's let's talk about the the story of the episode. Uh, you know, Jay Sherman goes to one of his many uh, critic screenings of Indecent Proposal Two. <laughs> right, and for those listeners that might not remember, Indecent Proposal was a film with uh, Robert Redford and I think Debbie Moore. Yeah, and, and it was and it was you know controversial at the time. It's funny; it was a cultural touchstone at the time, but I think it is completely forgotten today because uh, it's about this this rich guy. There's a family that's uh, or husband and wife that's having some financial trouble, and so this rich guy offers them a uh, million dollars if uh, the wife will spend the night with him. Uh, and I remember uh, references to indecent promo- proposal cropping up everywhere. Of course, it crops up in the in the critic. Uh, crops up in the second appearance of Artie Ziff on The Simpsons at a high school reunion. Uh, there's, I don't know if you remember the 90s animated series, uh, The Max, which aired as part of MTV's Oddities, but there's an episode where Max and uh, his social worker leave a movie theater, and they never say the title of the movie, but they're clearly talking about Indecent Proposal. I do not remember that show, but I do remember it was um, the movie was big in the zeitgeist. It was a popular film. Um, Robert Redford was, was still a, a heartthrob at that time, even though he was a bit older. And, uh, you know, Demi Moore, who was sort of, um, up and coming from, uh, you know, some of the 80s movies and getting more into her own. She had come a long way since, uh, Charles Band's Parasite. Yes. You know, the one I was thinking of was, I think, St. Elmo's Fire she's in, <laughs> with a lot of, uh, the Brat Pack, uh, people like Rob Lowe and stuff. So... And that he's really bored with the movie. He can't be bothered, but he can feel that someone's staring at him, the projectionist, uh, who who ends up 
you know, they, they just hook up right there in the projection booth. Yeah, they don't even speak. He just walks in right. to, to say hello and, and immediately, uh, as, as he says it, I was doing the horizontal pop. <laughs> and I'd like to mention, even though the show has sex, like it's never explicit, which it, it can't be because it's on, on ABC, for God's sake, uh, in this first season. But it's just like them like falling to the ground and, and fade to black. But even that was considered pretty shocking at the time well, and unusual on a cartoon. Something I love about this show, though, is, is that they do pay, uh, paint Jay Sherman as a real sad sack, but he is also a ladies' man. I mean, he he gets laid more than most animated characters outside of a Ralph Bakshi film. Yeah. But that is in part because he makes terrible relationship choices. He does, and he doesn't know when to stop. He doesn't know when to let go, as we'll see at the end of this episode. Which, actually, we also get one of my favorite things, which is a dated TV reference. Uh, Jay has this great flashback to his honeymoon, and it's him and his wife, Arliss, uh, on the dating game, or the on the newlywed game. <laughs> All right, your wife, Arliss, said you had the sex appeal of a dead mackerel. Yay, we won, we won! <laughs> <laughs> Right, and they go back to the joke with his ex-wife um, more in the series as as we'll go on to see. Uh, so you mentioned you hated the first part of the episode. Why? Well, I think it is because it, it takes it takes its sweet time uh, because the the first most of the first half of the episode before we get into his relationship, so much time is eaten up with what appears to be every sad sack Jay romance joke that they could cram in because it's just jay seeing everyone falling in love around the, around him in every crazy variation the newspaper headlines uh the fonts that use the heart uh and this just goes on forever like i feel like the, the critic hits a lot of hit, milks a lot of jokes uh for all it can get and this is one of the few times where that doesn't pay dividends uh, after a while, isn't I just, like one of the people he runs into it looks just like him with a beard. Oh, that, actually, that's one of the parts of this that I love. When he sits down next to that woman in the in the park, and his weight causes her to catapult off the bench and lands in the arm of a like dapper nineteen twenties version of himself. Yeah, um, but you're right. It's like a joke they repeat. You could have done it once or twice. They do it over and over again. It feels like you're just killing time to get to the main plot. Well, it's the perfect thing where they could have just hit that beat three times instead of seven. And then they could have worked in, to fill up time, worked in uh, a better, more thought-out uh, movie parody. Yeah, I recall on the on the commentary for this episode, they have Charles Napier, who plays um, Jay's boss in the show. And he doesn't even show up in this episode yeah the, and, we and they only apologize get, we only get doris uh his co-worker right and so they apologize to the actor he's like it's okay like oh we made you drive all the way out here to do commentary in an episode you're not even in <laughs> as opposed to john lovitz who will appear in audio commentaries for episodes he's not in oh and he Simpsons, wants to do yeah it. he'll just and show it, up and i mean that that is a real shame that lovitz never did commentary for this dvd set and you mentioned they talk about that on a simpsons commentary Yes, and he makes a joke about how he wasn't asked to do it, but I believe the real reason was because he was filming the Stepford Wives at the time. Oh, okay, right, with a remake of it with uh, Nicole Kidbit and, uh, was it Bette Midler? Bette Midler was in it. 
And so was uh, TV's Ferris Bueller. Wallace Shawn? No. <laughs> no? Oh. I thought, yeah, you're right. Matthew Broderick was in it. Uh, not not a great movie. But anyway, we'll talk more about that when we do our special John Lovitz episode coming up here in a bit. We sure will. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the strongest uh, parts where this episode picks up is Jay finally asked her uh, on a date after they hook up randomly during all these screenings, and he goes to her house, and inside it's full of Jay Sherman paraphernalia. And the animation just explodes as we get that amazing, of what appears to be a full 360-degree pan of her apartment and every piece of Jay Sherman merchandise that's in there. Right, and what I like is like the backgrounds... They're detailed, but they're not so detailed that, like, they'll be paintings of Jay Sherman, but they don't have a mouth, or, like, the eyes aren't filled in all the way. And uh, I was listening to an interview Al Jean did on the Kevin Pollack chat show. Mm-hmm. You ever uh, hear that? Yes, actually, I did hear listen that? to that episode. Right, and he mentions, you know, now that um, TV shows and animation is high definition, you have to fill in every little detail in the background. <coughs> But back in the early Simpsons, when you're doing The Critic, you don't have to make the backgrounds all that detailed. He gave the example of, like, if you have a a scene in a library, you have to write titles for every book. You can't just have squiggle lines. That's not good enough, because high definition, you can make out everything. Um, And, yeah, I just noticed that in some of the backgrounds here. It's not as detailed as it could be, but you still get the picture. I mean, it's very disturbing. I'm reminded very much of a shot that was used in a movie that came out maybe uh, 10 years after this episode with Robin Williams called One Hour Photo. Oh, yeah. Where there's a scene where he has nothing but photos in the wall of this family he's stalking. No, it's a, it's a very effective scene. Yeah. And they even call back to it moments later when Jay drinks the drugged wine and he starts to pass out, and the room literally spins, and we get all those same details coming by again faster and faster. It really is beautiful. Yeah, it's a good disorienting effect. I also like that as he drinks the wine, he's about to pass out. He, like, waits to get, like, one more bite of the eclair or the donut. Oh, oh, oh it's the, it the little hors d'oeuvres, like the pigs yeah, in the, the blanket. Yeah, the pigs in the blanket. He has, like, one more bite before he collapses to the ground. Well, they have some great uh, passing out jokes, including my, my favorite, which works much better if you're watching it on TV. Doesn't quite work on a DVD. When he wakes up tied to the bed, and she's got us, and he starts freaking out, and she, inje- she injects him with something, and he starts to pass out, and he goes, We'll be right back. And that's right. when they did it's cut commercial. to commercial when this aired. I see. <laughs> And then when he comes back, we proceed to see him drugged three more times in rapid succession. You see all the seasons change. Yeah, and I, I love that even she uh, it, it doesn't, uh, like, she even gets tired of having to constantly drug him. Which, actually, that occurs to me. We never learn her name, do we? No, you never do. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's voiced by Pamela Reed, but I don't believe she ever says her name. Which right. only makes it's, this uh, creepier. Yeah, it is. It is creepy, and um, it, it's also funny that it takes people so long to notice that Jay Sherman is gone. <laughs> I mean, it, it it takes his sister Margot going to his friend um, Jeremy Hawk. Jeremy, yeah, Jeremy Hawk. Which 
oh, one of my favorite gags in the series when she goes to when she goes to Jeremy's apartment. And Jeremy steps out and he's shorter than we've ever seen him, and we see that he's in bare feet. He ducks back in, comes out with boots on, and he's easily a foot and a half taller. And once again, milking a joke, everything it's worth. Uh, when they leave, he's running beside Margot. Then there's a snapping sound. He's, oh, damn, I broke a heel. And then he <laughs> keeps like wobbling <laughs> this really extreme angle as he runs. I, c- I think in the, in the commentary, they mentioned that as a reference to they saw Sylvester Stallone at a party once. Well, yeah, he, he, he was a guest on The really... Tonight Show back when they were yes, staff writers. And he was wearing some boots with some sort of crazy lifts on them. <laughs> Right, and lifts, um, listeners, if you don't know, is you, you put them in your shoe, and they give you an extra, like, inch or two of height. Um, but you can also wear, like, bigger shoes and stuff, and a lot of actors are shorter in real life than they appear in the movies. Like, um, I've heard Stallone, like, Tom Cruise, I've heard, is pretty short. Um, Kevin Hart is, like, obviously not that tall. Well, I'm already pretty tall. You know what short. I do? I carry yeah. an Apple box with me at all times, and I just refuse to acknowledge that I'm standing on anything. Eventually, other people start to wonder if they're hallucinating the Apple box. Yeah, there's, um, what, one of the Dirty Harry movies, the romantic interest is an Asian woman who is much smaller than Clint Eastwood. And so they have to keep on putting her in an Apple box the entire time to uh, make it look like they're around the same height. It's very distracting. Because that, cause height, uh, height uh, equity is the most important part of a relationship. <laughs> That's right. Apologies, listeners, for my hacking cough. I'm getting over a cold. So, fun times in podcasting land. Um, one part in the second half of the show that I think is a, a good running gag is uh, there's a grate by the bed that Jay is tied to, and he talks through the grate. And there's an old navy, uh, old lady, that thinks he's a cat because she just hears this voice through the grate <laughs> in her apartment. She's like, what, that's cat? You're awfully annoying for a cat. A film critic, that's a strange profession for a talking cat. Right. Why? Stop talking so much, cat. At one point, she throws the cat out the window. (laughs) Yeah. (coughs) Although, Jay certainly does like having that kind of human connection. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, think, think think of his point of view. He's just... In a terrible situation tied to the bed, but also, I mean, that that robs the show, I think, of a lot of... uh, Part of the fun is having um, Jay Sherman interact with other characters, and he can't do that very well when he's kidnapped for most of the episode. True. (coughs) Um, What do you think about the rescue attempt? Uh, I actually, I uh, love the the gag where... uh, Well, at first, I love that there's, like, real detective work and that uh, Jeremy, like, figures out, oh, well, I just need to figure out who the projectionist was at those screenings that Jay was going to, because Jeremy knew all about the relationship. He got filled in by Jay. Uh, It was a thrilling chase sequence. I love the bit where he goes to a vending machine to buy a gun. (laughs) And then, but then he has the gun, but he also doesn't know how to use it, and he accidentally shoots Jay in the leg. (laughs) And as he's getting the gun behind him, there's like a KKK member, uh, a criminal, a little girl. Or all in a line to get a gun from the vending machine. <laughs> which take which takes five dollar bills. Yep. Um But we also the, get a good example of of a callback and laying pipe. Uh the uh, rarest object in Jay Stalker's collection of memorabilia is this animated sign that was meant to advertise Jay's book called What I or called uh, Things I Do in the Dark. And uh <laughs> 
she cl- it's hooked up to her clapper. She claps and it just waves the book around going, buy my book, buy my book. And uh, when the stalker's going uh, chasing Jeremy with a knife, Jay claps and the cardboard cutout clobbers her with the book. And then, of course, Jeremy shoots it. And then he almost shoots Jay for saying, buy my book over and over again, which I used to quote as a joke. But now that I have books, I say it for real. Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. Hi, we're Ellen, Stephen, and Mark, hosts of Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. Topics include programming, design, tools, and more. We also do interviews and one-hour game jams. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get to your wherever you get to your podcast. You get there, <laughs> or at nicegames.club. Yeah, I you know I reached out to someone on Twitter. I was trying to get as a guest, and um, he wasn't able to do it. But he mentioned like, oh, are you going to talk about the episode where? There's this thing that goes by my book. That was the one joke he remembered from the series. And uh, it is one of those uh, annoyingly quotable lines. And it's funny that as he's trying to be rescued, Jay Sherman himself says, by my book, a few times. And then um, Jeremy points the gun at Jay. Yeah, it's really grim too. It's like, oh yeah, they took those dis- they they took down all those displays after a Brentano's manager shot himself. <laughs> Which is yeah. a wonderfully specific chain bookstore reference. Is that only New York, or uh, I've I've seen Brentano's other places, but I don't think I've seen a Brentano's in seven years. I'm not sure if they're still around because I think at one point they were owned by the same people who own Borders, but I know Borders is gone. Yeah, so maybe uh, they're not around anymore. That's possible. Um. So yeah, so I mean that's. This episode. Well, there's um, also though. Yes. You know, she when she gets arrested, and then we jump to just like in the movie Misery, which again is based on this episode. Uh, we cut to six months later. Jay's recovering from his leg injury from when Jeremy shot him. That's uh, right. And he goes to a date to the restaurant Les Riche, and what do you know? His stalker's there, <laughs> and they're having another date. And what, she tries to give him wine again, and then he he's joking, like, oh, is that poison? He's like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah, and it's like, and he still goes on the date. It's like, it it brings up how pathetic the character is, especially in this first season. Well, I just love that they're they're both laughing together, and she gently puts her hand on his shoulder, and he just jerks back, don't hit me! Right. And then Iris out. Heart Iris out. Uh, you don't get that many movie parodies in this. I mean, aside from the main misery thing. Well, you get you get Honey, I Laminated the Kids. Yes, you get, um, what, there's a Lethal Weapon knockoff that uh, Jeremy is, is starring in called Smith & Wesson. Oh, yeah. Not one more step, Wesson, or I'll chop your buddy Smith into cop salad. Hold the cop salad. I'm making kill slaw. <laughs> And actually, yeah. another recurring character design, um, the actor who's playing the, the murderer in that scene, uh, he shows up in later episodes. Oh, does he? Yeah, I, I, when we do those episodes, I'll talk about that, but he's a character that we will see again. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like the, those cheesy lines and some of the lines from action movies uh, in the 90s and 80s. 
Uh, I think one of my favorites, that's a bad pun, is uh, Schwarzenegger is the running man. He sends the bad guy who's a game show host on this device that goes out of control and it crashes into a Coca-Cola side and explodes. And uh, Arnold says, ah, that hit the spot. (laughs) Which is weird because wasn't that the 7-Up slogan? Well, 7-Up was the cool spot, I guess. The cool spot, yeah. And uh, I'm not even sure if it was actually a Coca-Cola sign. It was some. It might have been just like some generic space cola sign. <laughs> but yeah, that, that he says that hits the spot. The, the timing was just pretty dumb, but representative of stuff at the time. He, he'd get better. I suppose. Well, there's Batman at Robin, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which you can listen to on the sequel cast. <laughs> right. It'll be a cold day in hell. Revenge is the dish best served cold. What killed the dinosaurs? The ice age. <laughs> but, but back to the critic, please. Uh, we mustn't digress too far. Yeah, so I mean, overall, this episode is not one of my favorites. Um, I, I don't think it helps that it follows the pilot that was also about Jay dating a woman that takes advantage of him. And, I mean, and that, that is a trope. They, they do a lot in the first season, especially early on. And uh, later on, um, and, and we'll see this in like next week's episode, they concentrate more on his relationship with his son or his family or his mother or or um, or Doris or what have you. Oh, speaking of his mother, she gets a great line in this when uh, Jeremy organizes a press conference to reach out for information about Jay's disappearance. And instead of and Eleanor Sherman gets up to the podium and instead of talking about Jay, she just goes on a rant against the media and then backpedal slightly at the end to compliment the New Yorker. And then we get the guy from the iconic New Yorker That's cover right. in the audience. Good show, Mrs. S. Yes. Which I'm, I am shocked because that's one of the most iconic and parodied covers in history, <laughs> even by the New Yorker. I don't see why the New Yorker just doesn't do a whole year where they only run variations of that cover. I don't know. It's – um. Yeah, when I think of the New Yorker, it's the first image I think of. It's, yeah, good question. Um, So let's go on to a segment, uh, What the Hell Are They Doing, about what people in the critic are doing now. I found this. It happened today, actually. It's a South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin. And a co-creator of the critic, Al Jean, was on a panel about family values viewed through primetime animation. Hmm. And uh, it says it looks at the current crop of popular animated shows and network TV. You'll see a common theme, family. Uh, All these shows concentrate on working class families. And uh, as part of the panelists, they had Al Jean, who was also co-creator of The Critic, as I just said. David Silverman, who's also on The Simpsons. Um, Jim Deltarive, who's in Bento Box Entertainment. I'm not sure what that is. Rich Apple is the showrunner for Family Guy, and uh, Steve Callaghan, who's an executive producer on Family Guy. So um, I bet that was a, an interesting panel to see what they said, because, um, yeah, it, it says specifically, uh, points out Bob's Burgers is one of the things as well, and those are all about suburban um, families for the shows. And I think family values has loosened over the years since something like The Simpsons started. Well, thankfully, conservatives don't have a stranglehold on the word anymore, although 
I still feel that it, about 50% of the time when someone says family values, what they really mean is, uh, is homophobia and uh, dis- discouraging people from having enjoyable sex. Um, yeah, and freedom of speech. Let's not forget that. Well, actually, and Pamela Reed, who plays uh, Jay Stalker, uh, she is, uh, I think she's currently got uh, a bit of a recurring role on NCIS Los Angeles, but she's currently working on a metaphysical comedy where she plays a prosecutor called Asleep at the Wheel. Huh. Sadly, not too many details about uh, this film, uh, other than it's going to be directed by William Chartov. There you go. Um, well, let's talk about uh, the next segment, It Stinks, where we talk about a movie we saw that might have been critically panned uh, recently. I saw one that I hadn't seen in a long time, and it wasn't as bad as I remembered, but it wasn't that good either. It's uh, Austin Powers in Goldmember. Oh, yeah. Because I got a good deal getting the set on Blu-ray, I think, for like 10 bucks through Amazon. It was a pretty good price, so I figured, well, might as well. And uh, I hadn't seen it, I think, since it came out on the DVD originally, so it's been maybe 10 years. And um, have you seen this film recently? Not recently. I think the last time I saw it was, was maybe two years ago. I think I was, I think I was at a convention uh, exhausted in a hotel room, <laughs> and this just happened to be on. Yeah, it, it's like the second movie, but worse, because it does a lot of the same jokes. Um, what, what do you think about it? Like, I think Michael Caine is an interesting choice I, as his father. I like it. I actually like it better than the second one. Uh, huh. If only because, like, the, the the second one just just I felt was boring and it had no pacing to it and it had no heart. Um, Goldmember at least tries to give the film a, a heart by giving you know Austin Powers angst over his uh, his father, uh, who would what would have to be like a hundred years old. <laughs> based on the timeline established in the film. Something like that. I think... Um, and it didn't take itself too seriously. I mean, they, they were uh, there was a lot of comedy for the sake of comedy, which, if you're doing a comedy, I prefer than uh, trying to have too much treacle. I really like the beginning of Goldmember, where they have fake opening credits where it's like Tom Cruise plays Austin Powers and Danny DeVito is Mini-Me and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, and then Steven Spielberg as himself, as the director of what you're watching. But then they ruin that with having a gratuitous scene where Austin Powers stumbles upon uh, Britney Spears performing her hit song, Boys, and then, oh, no, Britney Spears is a fembot, and he shoots her, and then he says, oops, I did it again. Which not only is a Britney Spears reference, but like the second movie also begins with uh, I think it's Elizabeth Hurley turns out to be a fembot or something. Yeah, that, that's that's how they undo all of the progress of the first film is by just having her turn out to be a robot, blow her up, and have Basil Exposition say "No time to explain," and then they just get into the movie. And uh, I, I just didn't think that the character of Goldmember was that funny. I, I, th- I just thought he was annoying. Um, yeah, the only really the only bit he has that I really liked was when he was just listing different combinations of snack food and smokables to offer to yeah. guests. Smoking a pancake, burger, a bong, and a blintz. Yeah, uh, something in a uh, it was like, in a waffle. It was uh, like pipe and a waffle. Pipe and a pipe and a waffle. Which I don't know. I, I for some reason I love comedy that's just a list of things. 
and it just keeps on going on and on. <coughs> um, and the plot twist at the end where the characters are like, you find out Dr. Evil is related to Austin Powers and Minnie Me kind of becomes a good guy. That That's okay, but it seems a bit much to come in at the end. Um, although I like what they do with Seth Green. I think it's sort of a shame they never did a fourth Austin Powers. Well, I'm sure they tried. Because having Austin Green as a new Dr. Evil character is was interesting to see him just go crazy. From smart-ass to crazy person. He had more to do with this film uh, than the other ones. <coughs> which was which was nice. It was, it was nice they had that theme of family going through the whole thing. Yes. Oh, actually, it's funny you mention that. Uh, Austin Powers 4 is in development. They've been trying to get that made since Goldmember, like, opened up to a zillion dollars. And it looks like they're not going to stop. Yeah. um, Yeah, I'd rather see Mike Myers do a Wayne's World 3, to be honest, but... Or a dark and gritty reboot of Wayne's World. I know. But, I mean, it's just been a while. He hasn't... He did a documentary recently. Uh, He's coming out with a memoir that also details Canadian history. Interesting. Uh, So he's... You know, gotten married again. He's had some kids, so he's been busy with that. But he hasn't, you know, starred in a movie, really, since Love Guru, and that was quite some time ago. And that, all the way in the halcyon days of 2008. <laughs> so what is something you've been watching lately? Well, uh, speaking of it stinks, uh, I've been avoiding it for a while, but I finally saw uh, Sharknado 3, oh hell no. Uh, have you seen the other two? Yes, uh, the first one. The first one was just <laughs> terrible. I mean, the the free movie you get in your head upon hearing the title is far and away much better than the boring, padded. How how dare you make a movie called Sharknado and have it be boring and full of filler material? Um, the second one was somewhat entertaining. They were at least trying to do a movie with some spectacle. Um, but this third film, it's just trying way too hard. It's it's not having fun with the absurdity of its own premise. It's just it's just trying to cram in as many cameos as possible. Ah. And you can't keep you you cannot keep using this idiotic premise for three movies without people starting to really question the soundness of the premise. I mean, the first time you can get by on novelty, but not three movies in. Do they say the line? Oh, hell no. I think they, I think they probably did, but I blanked that out of my memory. Uh, speaking of shark movies, I saw a poster for one that's coming out. This oh, year. I, I think I know what you're going to say. Shark exorcist. Oh Yeah. The, the summary on IMDb is a denom- demonic nun unleashes holy hell when she summons the devil to possess a man-eating shark. Um, hmm. th- the trailer looks real bad, which is unfortunate because the poster is excellent. You see the back of a priest holding up the Bible and a cross as like a, a, a demon shark rises from the ocean. The, the poster is, is something quite special, but... Yeah, sharks are getting much less terrifying. I think it's it's overexposure. And the weird premises that they've been forced into recently. Yeah, I mean, sharks are the new... I don't know what it is, but like, yeah, the, all the sci-fi channel movies are just sharks or octopuses or 
combinations of everything. Iguana Kidna. Piranha Cats. When the director of Shark Exorcist in the 90s did a movie that was a spoof of basic instinct called Compelling Evidence. <laughs> starring Bridget Nielsen and uh, Dana Plato. That has got to be the the most soft, mundane title for any film. <laughs> it just sounds like a title you'd avoid. Yeah, that that would have been the working title, but they couldn't come up with a with anything better. I mean, at least, at least like Zucker had Fatal Instinct. Was that a Zucker film? Was that? I don't think it was. I mean, I I, I remember what you're talking about, but. I'm gonna... no, no, but it was directed by Carl Reiner. That's a surprise. Oh. Huh. Well, anyway. And it came out three years before um, that movie with the stupid title I just mentioned. Compelling Evidence. Compelling Evidence. Yeah, two years before Compelling Evidence. <laughs> you might as well call it Cogent Legal Point. Legal Thriller would have been a better title. <laughs> Yeah, I could go oh, for that. Oh, well. Um, so, yeah, I'll have to look and see what other stuff that stinks that I'll have to watch for for next week. Um, there's no lack of stuff out there, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Some of it in theaters. Are you excited about a Batman versus Superman? Not at all. I'm I'm curious... But I almost feel like I have to go out of a duty to go. And that's part I think that's part of the problem. I don't know too many people that want to see this movie. They all feel like they just have to. <coughs> I, I just wonder how convoluted it's gonna get. It appears to be very, but I mean yes. Z- Zack Snyder couldn't make one movie about Superman. I'm not gonna give him a chance to do a second. It's just so strange that after this one, they got Suicide Squad, and then they're going to do Justice League after that. And then after that, do, like, individual movies on, uh, like, Wonder Woman and, um, what else, Cyborg and Flash and all that stuff. So, Yeah, just nothing, nothing is giving me confidence in this film. Uh, he clearly he at every turn he demonstrates contempt for Superman and the source material he's working with. Uh, the one piece of casting I do enjoy is Jeremy Irons as Alfred. That's goddamn brilliant. I wish we were getting. I wish we were going to get him as Alfred in a better movie, or what will be a better movie anyway. Yeah, we'll just have to. I'm curious, like how it'll do compared to because um, Man of Steel. I mean, it made a lot of money, but it's still disappointed compared to something like the Avengers or uh, even the last Batman film, the uh, Dark Knight Rises. So we'll have to see. But there, you know, the the trade has started for all the big DC tentpole comic movies. So it's not like they're going to stop their next ten years of sequel plans. Well, they they will when the studio he- when one of the movies tanks horribly and the studio heads change and everything gets thrown into chaos. Yes, it uh, should be interesting to see 
the fallout, uh, whatever that happens. So um, I think we covered this episode of The Critic pretty well. Miserable, season one, episode two. <laughs> Tune in next week where we talk about season one, episode three, Barty's first date. Oh, that is a good one, as I recall. Yes. Focuses on Jay's son, Marty, and Cuba, of all things. <laughs> How are they going to get there? What possible situations could contrive, contrive to make that happen? Well, you'll have to turn in next week to find out. On Twitter, uh, you can follow us at Critic Podcast. You can also follow me individually at Internet Mayor. Um, if you'd like to help out the show, you can uh, contribute to the Patreon I started at patreon.com slash M-A-T-W-B-T. Um, we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash thecriticpodcast. So until next week, for Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, this is Matt. And this is William. Save. Sir, the show's over. You're going to have to leave the theater. No snappy comeback for that one? No snappy comeback. (laughs) I'm stuck in the chair.